I'm Jessica Harris, and welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burned spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come, join me at my welcome table. My name is Gail McDonough. I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Nancy Harrell, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Daphne Derman, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Betty Fussell, and I, too, am sitting at the welcome table. My name is Kerry Moody, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Derek Wright, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Llewellyn Grant, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. Compass point. 17.59 degrees north, 76.47 degrees west. Kingston, Jamaica. I'm old enough to remember the thrill on a Sunday night of watching a mellow-voiced, caramel-hued man croon calypsos that spoke of rum and fun on The Ed Sullivan Show. He sang Scarlet Ribbons and Jamaica Farewell with a presence that was palpable and a longing that was visceral. Listening to Harry Belafonte was transformational and resonated even more as I lived in Jamaica, New York, as close as I would come to the island for several decades. At that point, West Indian New York was a place apart, and the song Jamaica Farewell and the later teasing calypsos that I would come to know, Mama Looka Boo Boo, and more, would not mark a farewell to a lost island, but rather become an introduction to a place and a region that I have come to love and adopt. Oh, island in the sun, built to me by my father's hand, all my days I will sing in praise of your forest waters, your shining sand. My initial trip to the island would come in the full flush of young love with my very first real boyfriend. And y'all know what that means. And I traveled there with some friends of his. We rented a villa that came complete with a maid and a gardener, and I learned firsthand, and rather quickly, about the class system that was still rigidly in place, where a vibrant popular culture flourished under a social order that at that time seemed to have been created by the plantocracy, or at least by the still quite active former colonials. I had a love-hate relationship with the island until a very ill wind blew me to the right place. This is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. We begin tonight with what they are calling the 100-year storm. That is to say, Hurricane Gilbert 
which is thrashing its way through the Caribbean, is one of the real killers. Half a dozen people dead in the Dominican Republic, as many as 30 dead on the island of Jamaica. The winds were 160 miles an hour. At the National Hurricane Center, Gilbert is now classified Force 5. That is to say, a hurricane capable of doing catastrophic damage. Traveling down for a press trip in 1988, I found myself riding out Hurricane Gilbert at the home of a newly made friend, Maria Williams, now Maria Williams-Jones. She would provide my first entry into the real Jamaica. As the winds howled and galloped across the tin roof of her house in Constant Springs like horses' hooves, we huddled together in her great room, drank the copious rots of red wine that seemed to be the leitmotif of my life, and I began to learn about the Jamaica I now so love. We nibbled on fiery jerk prepared over logwood and pimento wood that we had provisioned ourselves with before the storm, and talked through the winds. After they had subsided, we found that the rains had knocked down bananas, and I learned about boiled green bananas and liver, two dishes that I had more than my fill of as we ate out the defrosting freezer and foraged for fruits the wind had knocked down. We were by no means hungry or displaced in the manner of so many Jamaicans as a result of that brutal storm, and so the after-storm time became my formal initiation into Jamaica's culinary culture. I learned to make a cucumber salad that tasted exactly like my mother's, but with a fiery addition of scotch bonnet chilies. I learned to season meat before cooking it to take out the freshness. Maria was my official native guide. And it was she who introduced me to the woman who would become my Jamaican culinary guru, the late Norma Shirley. Now here's where I choke up a bit because I don't get to present Ms. Norma to you. She died after a southern illness in 2010. But suffice it to say, she was feisty and fabulous. In 2002, I wrote about her in my book, Beyond Gumbo, Creole Fusion Food from the Atlantic Rim. I wrote this. Norma Shirley is a woman on a mission. Trained as a surgical nurse in Scotland, she's had a career as tortuous as a winding road through the Blue Mountains. She's been a caterer, a nurse, a restaurateur, a celebrity chef, and more. And now she's taken on the entire Jamaican food establishment. From her restaurant at Devon House in Kingston, she's working to upgrade the training of chefs, the quality of service, and the entire Jamaican dining experience, not only in her restaurant, Norma's on the Terrace, but in the entire country. That would be my girl. Norma's food is not classically Jamaican. Rather, the traditional tastes of the island are filtered through her experience of world travel and her extraordinary aesthetic sense. A starter of smoked marlin, using fish from the folks she encouraged to go into business, arrives dotted with capers and topped with a blanket of thinly sliced onions. A Cornish game hen arrives as a ship under full sail with a mast and sheets of fried breadfruit. Norma feels that cooking is for everyone and a means of artistic expression. Her chef can man the kitchen successfully in her absence, and yet is unlettered in more traditional learning. Waiters beg to work in her restaurants, and she submits them to stunning on-the-job training, roundly badgering them into perfection with a smile and a tease. 
in her own kitchen. She's a martinet demanding that things be done just so, threatening to box ears and clart folks in a manner that they all greet her with knowing smiles as they hurry to do her bidding. They know that Miss Shirley suffers fools neither gladly nor well nor lengthily. Norma's generosity, however, often goes unnoticed among her peers who wonder how she commands such loyalty. Anyone who has watched her as she thanks her staff and thinks of them while on trips, or as she makes sure that they are well-fed and housed and get to and from work safely, understands that she is someone who knows that loyalty cannot be bought. It must be earned. Norma's restaurant has had astonishing success, and has won accolades from publications in the United States and Europe, and made Norma a culinary ambassador for the food of Jamaica and the entire Caribbean. Her Creole food hints at the way of the future, blending the tastes of the past with the aesthetics of the present to remind everyone that Creole food is not static, but an ongoing and ever-evolving art. Now Norma was as mischievous as she was talented, and delighted in deflating the stuck-up and arrogant, and because she worked for the rich and famous, she got a chance to meet plenty of them. When she ran at Norma's at the Wharf House in Reading, she delighted in tweaking the noses of the aristocracy with a bar called Wharf Rat, complete with stuffed gray felt rats lurking under the tables, albeit stuffed rats with rhinestone eyes. For a birthday party that she once catered at the luxurious Round Hill, she counterbalanced an event that included fine china, heavy linens, and weighty Georgian silver, complete with chandeliers on the beach, with a yard party, complete with coal pots over open flames, and guests eating roots foods out of calabashes and off banana leaves, in a recreation of a Jamaican yad. She delighted in recounting that one, chortling with great glee, Jesse, Jesse! I even rented a blind man and his goat for authenticity. Storm and Norma was a hoot and a much-missed dear friend. More importantly, she loved Jamaica with a ferocity that was sometimes frightening. The island's biggest culinary booster, she sponsored fresh, local, and seasonal before they became international buzzwords, and she could always be found at the local market poking, prodding, and cackling with delight, along with the vendors. Carry me a kid on the Linstead Market, not a quarty what sell. Carry me a kid on the Linstead Market, not a quarty what sell. Oh, Lord, not a bite, not a bite, what a Saturday night. Lord, not a bite, not a bite, what a Saturday night. If Norma was in Kingston... She'd sooner or later turn up at Coronation Market. Coronation Market is to Kingston what Leal was to Paris. It's that simple. It's the city's stomach. Now, it's not a market for the curious or the timid, but rather a full frontal take-no-prisoners market where country folks migrate on the weekend to sell their produce, sleeping under the stands and fighting for every penny that they can make in order to survive. Over the weekends, it becomes a miniature city, complete with its own dominoes games and its own citizens.
It's a glorious, true, true market where the Jamaican seasons are visible in the aisles that are poetically named Mango Way, Sorrel Street, and Lime Tree Lane. Naysberries, West Indian cooking pumpkins, and ackee are piled high in colorful abundance in December, along with the fresh pigeon peas and the roseate pods of fresh sorrel, also known as flor de jamaica or hibiscus, that signal the Christmas season. At all times, there are bright red scotch bonnet chilies, as well as the fresh thyme branches and allspice, known here as pimento, that are the holy trinity of Jamaican food. If you're lucky, you'll find the bright green cannonballs of breadfruit that tell a tale that is more familiar than most people know. You know that it's breadfruit season For when the breadfruit season come We all know say that hungry done So hurry, hurry, hurry To the nearest market Hurry, hurry, madam, hurry Before the higgler hawk it For when the breadfruit season come We all know say that hungry done It was all about feeding the enslaved A topic of prime concern for 18th century British planters Sir Joseph Banks, who had sailed to Tahiti with Captain Cook, saw breadfruit being eaten there and recognized its value as a potential food crop for other tropical regions. He thought that the prolific starchy globes might be just the thing to have in the Caribbean with which to provision the enslaved. Banks was so enamored of the fruit that when roasted tasted a bit like freshly baked bread that he crowed in 1769... If a man plant ten breadfruit trees in his life, he would completely fulfill his duty to his own as well as future generations. Well, since feeding the enslaved was that topic high on the plantocracy's mind, it sounded good to them. Banks was also the unofficial director of Kew Gardens at the time, and along with others, he managed to convince the king to mount an expedition to sail to the South Pacific to bring back saplings with which to establish the plant in the Caribbean. The story of bringing breadfruit to the islands has been the subject of many a film, but all too often, the breadfruit is never shown. A ship was obtained, a crew was organized, and the captain's cabin outfitted to house the potted plants. Two days before Christmas in 1787, a ship left Spithead, bound for Tahiti. The captain, William Bly, had been personally recommended by Banks, and he had sailed with Captain Cook on his final voyage. The ship was the HMS Bounty. Bly's trip to Tahiti in search of breadfruit and its aftermath would result in the infamous mutiny on the bounty. But it was all about the breadfruit. 
The bounty arrived in Tahiti on October 1788, after 10 months at sea, and the crew enjoyed unexpected five-month hiatus while the saplings were prepared for departure. Like all good sailors, they knew shore leave when they got it and gave themselves over fully to the delights of Polynesian life while readying the plants for the voyage. Some got traditional tattoos, others formed friendships with local women, and they all became involved with the customs and the cultures of Tahiti. The scuttlebutt was, however, that Bly was less enamored of the local delights than the other crew members, and as time went by, he became increasingly abusive to the crew members, especially the ship's sailing master, Fletcher Christian. On October 5, 1789, the bounty set sail from Tahiti with its cargo of breadfruit. Bly's tender ministrations to the plants further exacerbated the already tense situation. Twenty-three days later, under the leadership of Fletcher Christian, the mutineers captured Bly and took over the ship in a bloodless coup. It seemed that they were tired of Bly's abuse and the fact that the breadfruit saplings were getting better care on board than the crew. Christian set Bly, the ship's master, two midshipmen, the surgeon's mate, the ship's clerk, and others who knew that if they remained aboard with Christian, they would be considered mutineers under maritime law, into the bounty's 23-foot ship's launch and set them adrift. Bly and 18 others then managed a voyage that was nothing short of miraculous. They sailed for 47 days and navigated 3,618 nautical miles with only a quadrant and a pocket watch as instruments. Bly returned to England and arrived in London two years and 11 weeks after he'd departed. Undaunted, he mounted a second expedition and returned to the South Seas, where he successfully collected 2,126 breadfruit plants and numerous other botanical specimens that were finally delivered to the West Indies. Now, descendants of the original breadfruit plants can be found in the botanical gardens of Jamaica and St. Vincent to this day. But that's not all. In one final coda, one that has always amused me, the enslaved in the Caribbean refused to eat breadfruit until 50 years later when it eventually became a part of the local diet. By that time, however, slavery was over. So the mission of bringing breadfruit as fodder for the enslaved was ultimately a failure. Thus the gods do laugh at us all. Sunday gone, I jump on a minibus. I really late, but it's not my fault. Jamaican food has always been a complex story of upstairs, downstairs, great house, slave cabin relationships that rivals anything Downton Abbey could have to offer. And nowhere is that story better told than at Belfield Great House on the North Coast. There, Michelle Rousseau is the lady of the manor and the custodian of the culinary history. A protege of Norma Shirley, she's decided to give Jamaicans and visitors alike a trip back into Jamaica's past and to explain the complexities of the island's history in food, music, and rum. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Jessica. Hi. So tell us a little bit about Belfield. How did you get this idea? Where is it? What goes on? 
Um, well, Belfield is an 18th century sugar plantation that um, has been around for many, many years. When I looked around, I found there was a lack of a representation of the authentic history of Jamaica. A lot of the beauty of our country um, and, and our culture and, and even you know, with the music and the arts and the sports and the athleticism comes through the African heritage. And I felt that when we went to a lot of those types of, of tours, you know, great houses and stuff, you were seeing Jamaica from the point of view or perspective of a colonial perspective. And you were not really hearing the stories of the people who lived and worked on these estates. And, you know, that reality has really just fused into our culture and our food throughout. So you have this natural fusion of African culture, European culture, Asian cultures, Chinese cultures. But um, at the end of the day, I just felt the story needed to be told. And um, the focus of our tour is that we really tell this story from the perspective of uh, a slave or someone who worked on, on the estate. Um, we, we take a quote-unquote day in the life of a sugar plantation in 1805. You know, when you're in high school and you're studying history, most people, not me, roll their eyes and sleep and think, oh, I have to study another date, oh God, you know, but I was always fascinated because I just felt like I could envision these things happening and I could envision this life. And so what I tried to do was create a historical cultural experience that was engaging, interactive, and fun, you know? So mm. tell us a little bit about jerk and the maroonage. Um, jerk is interesting, you know, jerk has become um, synonymous with many things in the world of today. Um, it's used as a noun, a verb, and an adjective, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely, like so, barbecue. Yeah, yeah, so you jerk something, or you have jerked pork, or you eat jerk, you know? Um, but um, originally, it's, it is purported to um, be a combination of two different techniques. One that was um, called charki, which came over with Peruvian Indians who were, well, ta the Tainos or the Arawaks were supposedly descendants of, of Indians out of Peru, and they brought some elements of the technique, as well as the Maroons who were escaped slaves, then perfected that. And um, it's a combination of spices that they would um, rub over, usually meat, you know, um, for and keep it marinated for a long period of time. They would then dig a very deep hole and, sub, and put the... Um, hog or the whole hog usually a wild hog in the ground wrapped sometimes in banana leaf or damp banana leaves and cover that and, and allow it to cook that later became um, um, an above ground barbecue or like a spit type experience and now modern day jerk is really jerk that is served on a, a grill that's above ground but you have pimento wood um, on it and the smoke of the pimento wood flavors and mixes with the pimento berries from the tree. And now you have to tell us what pimento so is. So pimento is a type of spice. It's, it's not like pimiento. All spice. All spice. Oh yes, all spice up here. But pimento in, in Spanish terms would be the little peppers. But So it's not that. But Jamaican all spice, yes, is what we would yeah. call it pimento at home. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And it has confused more than one. More than one. Yes. Reader. I'm sure that yes, they will go and buy the little pimientos. Exactly. Spanish, um, the Spanish peppers. ones. Coconut palms dot the Belfield property, and I am reminded that the Caribbean pentimento for old great houses is an alleyway of tall palm trees. Throughout the region, an alley of palms is usually a sign that a great house once stood there. They may be royal palms in some places, or coconut palms in others. I've often thought that the coconut should be on all of the island's hallmarks, for it, along with the sugar cane that made the fortunes of the plantocracy, is constantly in evidence. Coconut, 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 coconut,
Coconut water, coconut. it's good for your daughter. Coconut, coconut like an iron, coconut. make it strong like iron. And it's interesting because coconuts are not native to the region. Coconuts, people weren't sure for years where they were from, but it turns out they probably originated in South Asia. And by water, because they float, made its way all around the world to other tropical regions. Well, certainly they've made their home in Jamaica, where coconut water is one of the classic street beverages. And if you haven't tasted it, you haven't lived until you've been in a market or alongside of a dusty road and tasted a coconut with the top lobbed off, drinking the water with a straw, or if you're hardcore, just pouring it out into your mouth. And when you finished having that coconut hacked open, a little spoon made out of the shell, and eating the jelly from inside the coconut. It's pure tropical bliss. But what goes better with coconut water? And coconut water, by the way, is the liquid in the coconut. You have to make coconut milk. But that's another story for another day. What goes better with coconut water than rum? At Belfield Great House, I was fortunate enough to have a rum tasting with Appleton Rum. Welcome to Jamaica. I just want to welcome you here to enjoy a very unique rum experience. Okay? Not very many places in the world would allow you to experience rum at this time of the morning. <laughs> welcome to Jamaica. This is how we do it in the island. All right. All right. All right, so I'm going to ask you to first, let's look at the plates that I set out in front of you. And I want you to look at the elements that are on the plate because each of these elements represents a flavor that you will find represented in the range that we're about to go through. So first, let's start with the orange peel. I want you to just take it and just evaluate it. Sniff. And try to remember these flavors. The nutmeg. Your vanilla. And your coffee. I'm saving that chocolate for a little later. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to pour to a taste. Enjoy the experience because this is truly a magnificent rum in a glass. A magnificent drinking experience. So cheers. Cheers. Now, anyone who knows me knows I'm not leaving the island of Jamaica without coming home with a few books. Nyam Jamaica, a culinary tour by Rosemary Parkinson, and Jamaican Food, History, Biology, Culture by B.W. Higman are two works no culinary traveler will want to return without, and they're not easy to find. Sangsters in Ocho Rios might just have a copy, or surprisingly, They might be available in the hotel gift shop. Check. 
And if you're in Kingston, don't forget to head to my favorite bookstore at the University of the West Indies campus. Open to the public, it is a treasure trove of texts and works on the island and its history and culture. Also while in Kingston, don't forget to make a stop at Devon House. Devon House is a national museum, and it's beautiful inside. Don't just visit the gardens. But it's also a wonderful courtyard where you've got small shops, restaurants, and where, in fact, Norma had her spot on the terrace. Try an ice cream cone in a tropical flavor from a shop that is one of the ice cream lovers' must-stops on any trip to Jamaica. In fact, it's one of the world's great ice creams along with Bertillon and Coppelia. If you're like me, it's not ice cream. It's a fancy rum drink under the green canopy of trees at the grog shop. All too soon, it's time to head home. But I always like to have one last stop somewhere with a view of the water for my last meal. On my most recent trip to Jamaica, it was near Round Hill on the north coast at a small place called the Lobster Trap. There, on a simple table, Friends and I nibbled on a perfectly grilled lobster and the escovitched fish that is the history of Jamaica on a plate and my favorite dish. Then, while the sun went down on the bay and the waves lapped gently on the shore, then I had to say my Jamaican farewell. Sunshines daily on the mountain top. I took a trip on a sailing ship, and when I reached Jamaica, I made a stop. But I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down, my head is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston Town. But it will not be for long. Until next time. Remember, Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.